0: Hello and welcome to the Negotiating Ideas podcast. This is your host, Omar Sader. In this episode, I talked to William Malley, who served as professor of diplomacy at the Australian National University from 2003 to 2021, and was foundation director of the Asia-Pacific College of Diplomacy. Bill has a wealth of knowledge on Afghanistan, amongst many other publications. In February 2022, he published an article titled Diplomacy of Disaster, Afghanistan Peace Process, and the Taliban Occupation of Kabul. Later in April 2022, he wrote an op-ed, Why Now, Afghanistan and Ukraine Nexus. We, sp- we spoke about both articles. We, we began by talking about the totalitarian nature of Taliban and moved on to speak about 2018 and 2022 peace talks between the U.S., the Taliban, and the Republic of Afghanistan. It was a pleasure to record this episode with him, and I hope you will enjoy listening him. Well, thank you so much for accepting the invitation and speaking on this podcast. Let me start by asking you the question, how do we make sense of Taliban? How do we understand Taliban? I read from you somewhere that you said, we have a misunderstanding about Taliban and part of it has to do with the discrediting of the rigid Friedrich and Brzezinski's model of totalitarianism with the disintegration of the Soviet Union. This distracted attention from a key point made by the great Sovietologist, T.H. Rugby, quote unquote, who said, as a more general term, signifying patterns of thought and action that tends to total social control, totalitarianism still deserves a place in the election of social sciences. I wanted to ask you, do you still think so? Do we need to understand Taliban through lens of theories about totalitarianism and how is that?
1: Yes, I first started thinking about the Taliban in this sense in the late 1990s when I wrote a short piece for Afghanistan Info called The Taliban, Fundamentalist, Traditionalist or Totalitarian. Uh, And this was animated partly by a sense that the notion of fundamentalism and the notion of traditionalism didn't help very much in trying to characterize uh, the Taliban movement. Uh, And I built that into the introduction to a book that I edited in 1998 called Fundamentalism Reborn, Question Mark, Afghanistan and the Taliban. The idea of totalitarianism was not one that would immediately have captured the attention of political scientists at the time because, as you mentioned, the, the notion as formulated by uh, Karl Friedrich and Zbigniew Brzezinski in the 1950s didn't really seem to fit the Taliban at all well. If one goes back to the Friedrich Brzezinski interpretation of totalitarianism, they put forward a, a six-point model right. or syndrome which turned around ideology, uh, the existence of a single political party, uh, a centralized command economy, um, party control of communications, party control of the military and the existence of a secret police. And one of the criticisms of the totalitarian model was that it was really just an extension of elements of the Stalinist political yeah. system uh, dressed up as a, a broader theory. Uh, and I was never a great sympathiser with that particular approach since it seemed mm. a very static Uh, approach, which even in the 1950s had not been very effective in coming to terms with the changes that were beginning to take place in the Soviet Union after the death of Stalin and the advent advent of Nikita Khrushchev as the uh, first secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. There is another sense of totalitarianism, however, which is really quite different. Uh, It goes back to the original use of the term uh, in fascist Italy, then was picked up to a degree by Hannah Arendt in her book called The Origins of Totalitarianism. And that kind of usage is concerned more with the disposition of a particular group to aspire to total control in the sense that such a group denies the legitimacy of a private sphere of life into which the group has no particular right to intrude uh, and this seems to be much more useful in characterizing the taliban than any kind of and even if we go syndrome. by the
0: definition that uh, Mussolini himself gave about what is a totalitarian state he said that everything is in the state nothing is out of the state so, yes, so the taliban definitely. also somehow erased try to erase what is out of state or you may say, private sphere, but also civil society and all that.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the reasons that in the late 1990s there wasn't that much discussion of totalitarianism was that it was associated in people's minds with the idea of a strong state of the sort that one found in the Soviet Union under Stalin or in Nazi Germany. Clearly, in Afghanistan, there was a very different kind of Issue surrounding the state in the 1990s, namely that it had substantially collapsed in terms of possessing any kind of capability to mobilize and redistribute resources on a large scale or in a systematic fashion. Uh, But that did not mean that there were not totalitarian aspirations in the hearts and minds of political actors within Afghanistan and uh, one saw manifestations of that albeit without the same kind of state power that existed in those earlier systems in the behaviour of the vice and virtue ministry Mm. for example uh, under the Taliban which uh, again was driven by the sense that there was no particular sphere of social activity which they weren't entitled to control if they felt that individual behaviours were an affront to their particular idea of what religion right. requires.
0: So now if if we uh, understand them in terms of totalitarianism, so at least let's talk about two dimensions of it. One is at least they should have an ideology, irrespective of whether we accept the definition of Brzezinski and Friedrich or not. But ideology remains central to any totalitarian entity. And as you mentioned, the Ministry of Vice and Virtue, um, they are... Th- an instrument to to implement sort of enforce sort of ideology. So, what do you, how do you characterize Taliban's ideology? Because earlier in this conversation, you tried to disassociate yourself from the notion of fundamentalism uh, and traditionalism, which were two strong concepts uh, in order to analyze Islamists uh, in Middle East. So now, um, fundamentalists were different from traditionalists because traditionalists are usually these mullahs, madrasas, which existed in all villages, but they didn't have political aspiration. But on the other hand, political Mm. Islam emerged after 1970s and 80s as a result of jihad in Afghanistan, and that brought a political aspiration to the religious sentiment of the people. So how do you differentiate Taliban from these two concepts then? Yeah, Uh,
1: where traditionalism is concerned, I think one of the key features to note there is that the Taliban, uh, to a significant degree, were not simply a creature of traditional society at all. They were, if anything, a manifestation of the consequences of the disruption and breakdown of traditional society as a result of the predations of conflict during the 1980s in particular, Uh, and uh, added to that the displacement of millions of people as refugees to Pakistan where the kind of life that existed in refugee-tented villages uh, was very different from the kind of life that villages themselves would have offered in terms of, for example, occupational structures into which people would have moved. And uh, it's almost a commonplace proposition that the exigencies of daily life can knock the rough edges off ideology. But when one doesn't have... As a, in a sense a normal daily life, but instead as living a daily life that's a product of massive social disruption, then um, then the uh, the exigencies of ordinary daily life are not necessarily going to play that role so effectively, uh, and particularly one saw that with people being drawn into Pakistani madrassas, uh, which were at that time under the influence of other radicalising influences. Of a sort that fueled a great deal of sectarian conflict in Pakistan in the 1990s, um, which differed rather from the kind of socialization experiences that the village mullah might have been undergone in Afghanistan in earlier times. Uh, in terms of fundamentalism, I think the key distinction there is that fundamentalist movements historically have been modernist. Uh, And if one looks at the Muslim Brotherhood or some of the manifestations of Islamism in Afghanistan uh, influenced by Niazi and and people like that in the 1970s, there was a distinctly modernist dimension to those um, ideological positions that was really absent from the the Taliban who, if anything, were anti-modernist in a significant degree. Uh, And... To, to, to some extent what that uh, reflected once again was the pathogenic character of the Taliban's emergence rather than their having been a product of earlier um, developments. They weren't simply an evolution of groups like the Hizb-Islami or the Jamiat-Islami or groups of that kind. They were a mm. very, very different mm. kind of group. Uh, and in a sense, they probably fell more into the category of what the French scholar Olivier Wack called neo-fundamentalists uh, in his book, um, uh, The Failure of Political Islam, where he argued that groups would either modernize
0: or they would become marked by gigantic levels of hypocrisy. Right, right. So um, now, if, if we really accept the fact that they are a totalitarian movement, that somehow limits all options for a possible peaceful coexistence uh, with the Taliban because they do not accommodate any idea which is not aligned with the Taliban ideology, right? So if that is the case, what would be the way out uh, in respect to our engagement or any kind of relationship with the Taliban?
1: Well, I don't think there's any uh, fruit to be gained from uh, believing that that there will be significant change in uh, the, the Taliban movement as a result of engagement with, with international actors or frankly even with other actors within Afghanistan, that one is dealing with a, a most peculiar force uh, where, um, as is the case with some historically fundamentalist movements, the will of the particular leader in charge um, tends to provide an authoritative interpretation of faith which those who are exposed to it then reformulate in their own minds as the will of God. And when that happens, it becomes extraordinarily difficult to engage in a rational argument because lines of argument that contradict the fundamental precepts that underpin the claims of the leader are simply delegitimated by the assertion that they are... Um, irreligious, uh, that they're a product of disbelief, uh, that that they are anti-God. And uh, that becomes a very, very difficult situation to manage. Um, The Taliban in in that sense are not just different from um, historical political forces in Afghanistan. They're also very different from the historical schools of Islamic law, which have witnessed very significant Discourse, and to, to a significant degree, the work of people like uh, Halak have suggested that when one talks about Sharia, one isn't really talking about a, a code so much as a mode hmm. of discourse which allows uh, interpretation to follow. And of course, you could go back to earlier schools of thought sort of before the gate of Ijtihad was closed, as it were, associated also with groups like the Matassalites, which offer a radically different approach. But it's pretty clear that the Taliban would simply see that as heretical uh, and wouldn't Mm. engage with with that kind of methodology of um, judicial interpretation at all. So... uh, Um, one is up against a brick wall under those circumstances. And in a way, it's a mirror of the uh, belief that Western players entertained before the agreement that was signed in Doha on the 29th of February 2020, that they were dealing with people who were, uh, as it were, interested in negotiating their way through concession and bargaining towards um, a win-win outcome it's become painfully clear that this was a menacingly dangerous misperception on the part of the wider world. And, and yeah, so you, you that, clearly the think that,
0: that. Um, there was a deliberate or at least uh, benign kind of effort to downplay the Taliban's decisions or behaviors are driven by certain ideology and values. Rather, the effort was to highlight that there is a conflict of interest and th- that's why that could be negotiated.
1: Yes, well, I think uh, one of the serious mistakes that the United States made was to think of the conflict between the Taliban and the Republican system as simply a conflict of interest, um, uh, which would be amenable to some kind of distributive solution, which is widely discussed in literature on bargaining and negotiation. What this missed was that there was also a gulf Mm. of values. That's not to say that there weren't conflicts of interest, of course, there were conflicts of interest all sorts of conflicts, but there were also radical conflicts of values. And virtually all the literature on negotiation will tell you that uh, when you have really radical conflicts of values, it is extremely difficult
0: not only to work one's way towards a, a, but that a does not mi- dismiss bargain. But, but that does, does not dismiss the well. possibility of negotiations. Still, you can negotiate with, a, with someone who has fundamental value differences with you.
1: Uh, it becomes extraordinarily difficult to uh, ensure that any agreement that might be struck uh, is ultimately Mm. honoured. And this, I think, was part of the the difficulty, again, that arose from the negotiation process, that um, for an agreement to be honoured, there needs to be a genuine good-faith commitment on the part Mm. of the parties to an outcome which may not be their optimal so, uh, choice in that case, yeah. uh, and 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 that's not always uh, the way in which things play out at the implementation phase. There's a, a great deal of literature. Um, uh, there's a, a terrific book by Professor Barbara Walter of the University of California at San Diego called "Committing to Peace: The Successful Settlement of Civil Wars," which uh, makes the point that it's often implementation, rather than the striking of an agreement on paper, that proves to be the really difficult phase of any kind so of well, peace-building
0: process. Barbara, Barbara Walter doesn't talk, particularly talks about negotiating with a fundamentalist, but he overall he talks about context of several uh, wars, and as you rightly mentioned, for him, what is important is guarantees in a peace process, because they are the one who ensures a secured and trusted implementation of the the talks. Now, probably one of the flaws of the process, uh, 2020 negotiations with the Taliban was lack of guarantees. And I think ironically, I do not come up with any kind of report that President Ghani or even the Taliban demanded for a guarantees when they started negotiation. Do you see so? Well, I don't think so. It was partly
1: because it was pretty obvious that with the United States um, planning to get out using the the agreement as an exit agreement, no one else was going to put their hand up to step in uh, to provide security guarantees. And the critical thing uh, that, that Barbara Walter addresses in her book is the need for a neutral guarantor. Uh, a guarantor in a, a contested situation can't be a player that is aligned with one of the parties. That will never work. Mm. Uh, we've seen the problem in in the Middle East, in the Arab-Israeli dispute where the United States is seen to be too close to Israel to play a credible neutral role under the circumstances. And uh, and in the Afghanistan case, none of the neighbours could be trusted to play that particular role and nobody in a more remote part of the world was going to play it if the United States with its military logistical logistic capability was pulling out. Yeah. Um, it was certainly not something that the United Nations would be able to orchestrate because the UN is no more than a creature of its own member states and one of the problems in the Rwandan case uh, which was studied in detail by Barbara Walter in her book was that the number of troops that were contributed by member states of the UN for the um, United Nations force in Rwanda was well below uh, the minimum threshold estimated by General Dallaire, the force commander, as necessary for the force to function feasibly. And I think that certainly would have been the case in Afghanistan as well. So. Um, this, I think, was a fundamental problem associated with the the peace process. It was hugely dependent, hmm. fundamentally, centrally dependent upon the notion that the Taliban were engaging in good faith bargaining for power sharing right. in Afghanistan. So, if, uh, hmm. and and there was simply no evidence credible evidence
0: to give any justification to that belief. Yeah, So if, if we are, for example, let's say redesign the process and go back um, to 2020 and 2018, uh, what components of the process you would replace or redesign in order to ensure that Taliban remain committed or at least to, uh, to have them uh, uh, committed in the process? Yeah. Uh, I would have gone back much further than that. I think without
1: attention to the issue of the sanctuaries in Pakistan which enabled the Taliban to sustain their military activities, um, it would have been very difficult to uh, address this problem in any meaningful fashion. The, the, the original sin in the American uh, approach to um, Afghanistan diplomatically was um, to detach the issue of diplomacy from the issue of sanctuaries in Pakistan. There are plenty of diplomatic tools that could have been deployed to try to address that issue and Lisa Curtis and Hus- Hussain Haqqani published a fairly detailed, carefully structured paper which outlined a kind of ladder of escalation of pressures that could be brought to bear uh, to, to deal with the problem of Pakistani perfidy. Instead, the approach uh, that was taken by successive US administrations was to perfu- per- persuade themselves that, um, that squeezing Pakistan until the pips squeaked was either too difficult or too dangerous and that, therefore, one should frame the Pakistanis as part of the solution rather than part, as the, part of the problem. This was wishful thinking of the dreamiest variety. Yeah. So, and it really poisoned the the so-called peace process from that point onwards because it meant that the Taliban always went into the process with a strong military option at their disposal. That the 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 Afghan government was never in a position on its own to address the problem of sanctuaries in Pakistan. It couldn't invade Pakistan. Uh, it didn't have the diplomatic clout on its own to address the problem. It really needed its allies to take. Up that issue, and they failed to do so in a way that was frustrating for the Afghan government. But frankly, it was also frustrating for the U.S. military and other Western militaries that were involved in Afghanistan. That were well aware of how central these sanctuaries were to the ongoing campaign that their own personnel were confronting on the ground, but uh, but which uh, Western diplomats failed critically to address in any feasible fashion.
0: And this could have been addressed only, probably, I think, I assume. Through designing a multi-track negotiation, where on one hand there was a channel to negotiate with the Taliban, but at the same time regionally another parallel track, but integrated in a in a comprehensive peace process, would have been talks with the uh, with the Pakistan. So these two should have come together, don't you think?
1: Yes, well, I think talks on their own with Pakistan would have gotten that way because uh, the um, the Pakistani approach, unfortunately, was one that followed um, uh, an approach that um, General Zier-ul-Huck actually uh, signaled very clearly to President Reagan in a conversation at the time of the Geneva Accords of April 1988. Uh, We know from the memoirs of US Secretary of State George Shultz that Reagan asked Zia how he was going to cope with the uh, fact that he'd continued to support the Afghan Mujahideen, even though he'd committed in, uh, in the accords not to do so. And Zia replied, we'll just lie about it. We've been lying for years about what we're doing in Afghanistan. Hmm. And essentially, that was what happened uh, after uh, 2001 as well, that the... Uh, uh, that the Pakistanis lied systematically about their involvement with the Taliban and Western countries, uh, instead of calling them out, just basically said, oh, well, yep, okay. Uh, and um, and that sent a lamentable signal. It actually uh, sent from the pretty early days of the, of the uh, intervention, certainly from the time of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, Uh, a signal that Pakistan really had nothing to fear from um, the United States and its allies. After a period in 2001 and 2002 when they had been on a very short leash as a result of the warnings that they had received from the Bush administration. But unfortunately, President Bush then framed President Musharraf as a buddy um, and was then distracted by the uh, uh, quagmire in Iraq into which the Americans became bogged um and that opened the door really for meddling to resume uh, in afghanistan and I, I, my, my personal view is that as long as that option was available to the taliban to have sanctuaries and the support of of uh, pakistan they were never going you're to negotiate right.
0: you're right but at the same time what i wanted to say as you rightly mentioned in your article is that never afghanistan even in genoa um accord of 1988 uh, on afghanistan Pakistan and Afghanistan didn't negotiate with each other. Um, And and this time also, they didn't negotiate with each other. At some moments, there were mediations. For example, in September 2019, um, General Nick Carter of Britain tried to mediate between Ashraf Ghani and General uh, Qamar Bajwa, uh, chief of army of Pakistan. But since the problem was, since these talks were not officially uh, attached with the mainstream peace process. So that's why it remained ad hoc to a certain level. So my point was if we could have designed instead of single-track talks, wherein only Taliban spoke with the US and later on Taliban spoke with the public, how about a multi-track process wherein it was endorsed by the US also, wherein government of Afghanistan and Pakistan negotiated and solved all those deep strategic, historical disputes?
1: Well, it depends what you mean by multi-track. Uh, if you had had, simultaneously, uh, an attempt to deal with the Taliban and an attempt to deal with Pakistan, uh, then I think uh, one wouldn't have got terribly far. I think what might have been a different story would, be, would have been if, first, there had been a serious um, confrontation with Pakistan over its support for the Taliban. If that issue had been credibly addressed then the calculations that surrounded the uh, subsequent engagement with the Taliban would have been a very different kind of story. Uh, and in, in a way you can argue, and I wrote this some years ago, that, uh, that if, if the issue of sanctuaries wasn't addressed there'd be no point in dealing with the Taliban. If the sanctuaries issue was successfully addressed, there might have been little need to deal with the Taliban because the closure of sanctuaries would have fundamentally changed the nature of the force with which the Afghan government was confronted at the time. Uh, But the confluence of the two, a situation in which they were confronting uh, a military force that had bases outside the boundaries of Afghanistan were therefore uh, effectively invulnerable to uh, attack. Um, and pressure from the United States to negotiate, which effectively made make further concessions to the Taliban, um, was a recipe for disaster.
0: Yeah. So probably Pakistanis and also Taliban uh, perceive their the entire world, Afghanistan plus its allies, like the way that Germans and Hitler perceived in, in Munich conference and say that I have seen my opponents and they're like worms. Uh, basically, yeah. they don't have the capacity. Uh, you, you compare uh, the Doha agreement with Munich agreement. Can you talk about that also?
1: Yes, the Munich agreement was the agreement signed in September 1938 uh, by um, Hitler for Germany, Mussolini for Italy, Daladier for France, and, and Chamberlain for the United Kingdom, which in effect sacrificed Czechoslovakia which had um, a a treaty relationship with France, although not with the United Kingdom, um, uh, to the demands that Hitler was making for the uh, transfer to Germany of the so-called Sudetenland region, in which ethnic Germans were located. Uh, The Munich Agreement, like the Doha Agreement, was negotiated in the absence of uh, representatives of the country whose fate was being determined. There were no Czechoslovak representatives taking part in the Munich negotiations, just as the negotiations in Doha excluded the Afghan government. Uh, and um, the uh, effect of the uh, agreements in each case was to signal, um, in a sense, the abandonment of uh, a small state by its uh, hitherto allied powers, Uh, and that set the scene in the case of the Munich Agreement for the occupation of the remainder of Czechoslovakia uh, on the 15th of March 1939, just half a year after the Munich Agreement was signed. So far from providing um, a stable foundation for a shrunken Czechoslovakia, the Munich Agreement actually opened the door for Nazi Germany to take it over and establish what was called a puppet state of slovakia and the so-called protectorate of bohemia and moravia um and uh, not that different from the um circumstances under which afghanistan fell to the taliban the main distinction between the two being that in that hitler got his will in, in march 1939 by simply intimidating the uh, czechoslovak leadership at that time into uh a capitulation, whereas in the the Afghan case, the effect of the manifest abandonment of Afghanistan by its key ally was to trigger a cascade in the social science sense of the term, where even people who didn't like the Taliban at all uh, recalculated what it would be in their best interest to do under the circumstances. Uh, And there's not a shred of evidence to suggest that the United States at any stage in the Doha process took into account the likely psychological effects within Afghanistan of the agreement that it was about to sign. Uh, And yet we know from a lot of experience in Afghanistan that when regimes change it's not because a power grinds its way to the center of Kabul, Um, it's it's typically because people reposition themselves because it's not a good idea to be on the losing side. Mm. Uh, and it's perfectly rational for people if they conclude that um, that they're on a losing side to reposition themselves. That's and true. this is why paying attention to the psychological consequences of diplomatic negotiations is fundamentally important, but it's a, a hugely neglected area.
0: Yeah, this is what you quote Thomas Hobbes, that perception of power is power. And the Taliban... Yeah, reputation
1: <laughs> of power is power. Yeah,
0: so the Taliban continuously throughout 2018 onwards, or even before that, they had the sense that the United States is weak or they want to negotiate, they want to withdraw. So why to negotiate meaningfully? So just wait.
1: Indeed, and a number of things that the United States did during the implementation phase um, aggravated that impression. Um, And one that's close to the heart of Australians related to the prisoner release issue. Uh, the the Doha Agreement provided that the absent Afghan government would release up to five thousand combat and political prisoners. Yeah, this is uh, was,
0: this was completely in, uh, violation of sovereignty of Afghanistan because uh, they had the authority the military, to release the them. The Agreement
1: incidentally also
0: provided for prisoner releases. Mm. Um, and uh,
1: this was of interest to Australia, because there was uh, a rogue sergeant of the Afghan military, Hekma who had killed three Australian soldiers within their barracks, that is not in a combat situation, but when he was wearing an, a, a uniform of the Afghan army. And he was captured and, uh, and was in the custody of the Afghan government uh, until September uh, 2020. The United States was on the same page as Australia in agreeing that Hekmatullah was not a combat or political prisoner. He was a war criminal, uh, clearly a war criminal under the Geneva Conventions, uh, and therefore should not be released. The Taliban made his release a precondition for the commencement of intra-Afghan negotiations, which, as you'll remember, was stalled and stalled and stalled, far beyond the 10th of March Date on which they were supposed to have begun. Uh, and the United States then did a 180 degree switch uh, and uh, supported the release of Hekmatullah, twisting the arm of the Afghan government relentlessly in order to procure this outcome. And uh, the Australian government contacted the United States at the highest level to object to this because of the. Um, Grief that it would cause to the surviving families of the three soldiers who'd been murdered, amongst other things, and got nowhere at all. And that's the classic example of something that then sends a signal uh, to uh, a group like the Taliban that if you ask for something, no matter how outrageous, and you're dealing with somebody who simply wants to cut and run, you're likely to get what you want. Yeah, so uh, And my, my late friend Owen Harris, the founding editor of the journal The National Interest, used to say, if you act as if you can be
0: taken for granted, you will be taken for granted. Mm-hmm. But this also referred somehow to another flaw in the process where at the beginning it was uh, at least uh, the envoy of the United States. Borrowed the principle from Northern Northern Ireland's uh, peace process and uh, Colombia's where he say that nothing is agreed until everything is yeah. agreed. This was an established yeah. principle in the previous p- peace processes. But what he did, he, for example, agreed for the release of prisoners. He agreed for withdrawal without Taliban making a commitment to start talks or ceasefires with government of Afghanistan. So, Ideally, things would have been sorted sec- sequentially, right? One thing went after the other. But yeah. Taliban didn't follow the same path.
1: No. Um, that was uh, the clearest manifestation one could wish to find of the amateurism of the diplomatic approach that the United States took. And here I'm wearing my hat as a professor of diplomacy. Uh, the nothing is agreed until everything is agreed formula is a perfectly reputable one because what it ensures is that a foreshadowed concession will become concrete if and only if it is matched by a reciprocal concession yeah. of equal value. Right.
0: But Talabat didn't that, reciprocate.
1: No, that's right. And the But the reason they didn't have to reciprocate was, that, as you say, the United States abandoned that um, principle of negotiation in favor of a two-state process. And the danger of a two-state process, a two-stage process, is that if the other side feels that it has received everything it really wants or cares about at the first stage of the process, mm. it has no incentive whatsoever right. to engage seriously in a subsequent right. stage of the process. This is something that any textbook on negotiation will tell you. In fact, if you go back to Francis Bacon's essay on negotiating, written in 1597, he says it is better to deal with people who are in appetite than people who are where they want to be. Mm, mm, mm. It's the the most elementary principle of negotiating. And, of course, what the Doha agreement did was give to the Taliban everything they really wanted. It gave them uh, a place at the table with the United States and the status that flowed from that. It gave them a firm timetable for the withdrawal of US and allied forces, to which the United States basically stuck. Right. Uh, and it gave them uh, 5,000 combat or political prisoners. Right. Uh, in, as you say, in violation of the sovereignty of the Afghan government at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. under the circumstances, the only incentive that the Taliban had was to engage in strategic stalling thereafter. To me, it's actually evidence of the danger of using people like Zalmay Halilzad in these kind of complex negotiations, because um, career diplomats tend to be alert to these kind of dangers, but he was not a career diplomat. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, he was a freewheeling um, kind of customer um, who I, I think was probably hyperactive and uh, didn't spend enough time regrouping and thinking through how to proceed thereafter. And you'll you will remember very clearly when we were together in Kabul in September 2019 after the uh, President Trump had suspended the um, uh, process because of the deaths of. Uh, an American service personnel who was killed in a Taliban attack. Um, Someone in our audience at the American University asked what I thought should be done with the peace process, and I quoted Churchill's comment on the death of a political opponent, which was embalm, create, bury, take no chances. Um, And it would have been very wise for the United States at that time not to rush back into a negotiation process, but instead... Uh, to sit back, to regroup, to think about where the process was actually going. We now know that within a matter of days of that discussion that we had in Kabul, the Americans were desperately trying to reopen discussions with the Taliban, which again sent the signal that they were keen to cut and run, um, which again was the worst possible kind of signal to send. One really can't underestimate the amateurism associated with any diplomat who goes into a negotiating process signaling to the other
0: side that he or she is desperate for an agreement. Yeah but uh, do you think it's exclusively because of personality or character or lack of skills that Khalilzad had because he you you also I think mentioned in your article that he he was uh, somehow like a carte blanche where he had full authority but but we understand that he was a bureaucrat or a diplomat of State And it was a complex bureaucracy and nothing is just on the authority of Khalilzad. But it was the State Department or the United States policy as such. So the entire yeah. administration should have been critiqued rather than person of Khalilzad.
1: Yeah. Uh, where I think uh, one needs to differentiate between different players there is that Trump as president was famously inattentive to detail. His attention span was... Extremely limited. It was once described to me by somebody who briefed him as maximum two minutes on any issue. Mm. Uh, Pompeo, I think, was probably following the issue more carefully, but he was notorious for doing whatever Trump wanted. Mm. And I think one can develop a plausible argument that with Trump having pulled out of the process in early September, it would not have been beyond the wit of his advisers to give him a string of good reasons why he should tread very carefully thereafter. Hmm. Uh, notably the possibility that there could be a spectacular collapse in Afghanistan in the run-up to the uh, scheduled 2020 presidential election that could be very damaging to his election prospects. That's the kind of argument that would have counted to him. As far as I know, there's no evidence that there was any attempt by people in the State Department leadership to persuade Trump to that effect. I haven't seen any evidence that it was Trump who initiated the re-engagement with the Taliban either. Um, This might come out at some point in the future. It's one of the things that's
0: unclear. It is very clear, however, that Halazat was champing at the bit to get involved again. But what about Ghani's administration on the other hand? You do not, it seems that you do not address that in your article. For example, Ghani didn't understand the the importance of having a mediator in the process. Um, He also uh, continuously tried to undermine political cohesion and consensus, political consensus uh, on his side in the republic. And he tried to buy time, delay the process. And that was what Americans also understand, that Ghani is trying to continuously delay the process, as Taliban was trying to do, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, I think there are several different elements that come into play there. One was, I think, that the divide and rule approach to politics was one that uh, President Rouhani pursued that was not just related to uh, diplomatic activities on the part of the United States. It was a wider theme of his presidency, really, that, uh, that he was not a pluralistic political leader. Uh, and uh, I think he understood the Taliban very clearly because yeah. he was not a power sharer either. Uh, and, um, and that partly animated his approach to the situation but to be fair to him, with a presidential election coming up in uh, November 2020, it made some sense to um, uh, stall to some degree in the hope that a new US administration would be able to offer better terms to the Afghan government than had arisen from the uh, uh, Doha agreement, and indeed that was not an irrational assumption if one looks at the recommendations that were put forward by the Afghanistan study group, a bipartisan group that was established under the auspices of the United States Institute for Peace. Um, in a sense, even if that was all that that uh, President Ghani had been waiting to see, um, the pursuit of those uh, recommendations would have created a somewhat different situation mm. on the ground to that which he ended up confronting. Um, it was not certain that Biden yeah. would go down the path that he did. Yeah. It was possible. But uh, 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 I, I'm not one who falls in t- altogether with the line that, that the Afghan government mishandled it because the Americans were always going to withdraw completely in terms with the uh, Uh, the provisions of the Doha agreement. One simply Mm. couldn't say that with certainty Mm -hmm, with a presidential mm -hmm. election coming up. Um, Things turned out Biden did stick to the terms that had been um, negotiated by um, Halal Zad and signed by Pompeo. But, oh, sorry, sorry, signed by Halal Zad. Uh, under Pompeii as well mm. as We earlier spoke
0: about the character of Trump and how he was making decisions and, and hence the way that Khalilzad, uh, Khalilzad used this opportunity. But also you mentioned about the recommendations of the afghanistan Study group by USIP. One of the key recommendations over there was to make the withdrawal of troops conditioned to the um, a successful uh, outcome of intra-Afghanistan dialogue. But why the Biden administration didn't buy it such kind mm. of uh, recommendation? Um, I think there are
1: several possibilities here, and you have to be given that the decision was made by one mm. man. To some degree, you have to get inside his head in order to work out what was going on. I think yeah. there were several different things at play. One was that Biden, I think, had always smarted at the fact that when he had opposed the surge that President Obama announced in 2009, uh, the military had prevailed over him in the argument within uh, policy circles in the United States. And I think he may have seen uh, 2021 as giving him an opposition, uh, a position, yeah. an opportunity to show who was the president. Um, I think that was part of it. I think it was also the case that Biden had been regarded with considerable suspicion by the progressive wing of the Democrat Party because of his very strong support for the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And so um, cutting and running from Afghanistan was a way of um, ingratiating himself with that particular wing of the party, not for electoral purposes, but for the purposes of locking Mm. in votes within the Congress, uh, where that progressive wing is represented to some degree. And then I suspect that there was also a a degree to which he had sort of soaked up the rhetoric that the war in Afghanistan was endless and unwinnable and that under those circumstances one should cut and run. That's philosophically interesting because it shows the dominance of a particular Mm. conception of victory, which you might relate to Appomattox in, in 1865 or or Tokyo Bay in 1945, where one side surrenders to another and that's the way in which you have victory in a war. That was never going to happen with a Taliban. But if you go in with a model of victory that is premised on that kind of understanding, and there's some evidence that that is the dominant way of thinking about victory that prevails in American policy circles, then Mm. it was always going to be a losing hand. Now, that's not to say that the best outcome was one where you would cut and run. Um, A better outcome might be one where you rethink what victory might actually mean or what success might mean, or whether not losing might be a desirable outcome in and of itself. Because, frankly, if you look at the situation in Europe, between the fall of France in June 1940 and the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December 1941, If one had actually said to Prime Minister Churchill in London, what is your strategy for defeating Nazi Germany on your own? He would not have been able to Mm. come up with a credible strategy. Which indeed was one reason why the Foreign Secretary Viscount Halifax in late May in uh, 1940, when the fall of France was imminent, was in favour of going into a negotiating process if it seemed to be on offer with Nazi Germany. What Churchill envisaged and understood was that the situation's parameters could change, which began to happen when Germany invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941 and then dramatically occurred when um, when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and Germany mm. then declared mm. war on the United States. Uh, and uh, and churchill had the wisdom to see that not losing can be a perfectly feasible strategy and in a way i think that's the chickens have come home to roost in the context of afghanistan now because if you look at the current situation in ukraine and ask why not just why did russia invade ukraine but why moment. did russia invade yeah. ukraine now yeah. at this moment rather than in 2008, when NATO membership for Ukraine first surfaced, I was actually in the room in Bucharest when President George W. Bush announced that the United States would support NATO membership action plans for Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, and uh, there's a mounting body of opinion embracing people ranging from Sir Lawrence Friedman to Elliot Cohen to the former Russian Foreign Minister Andrei Kozirev, which links the invasion of Ukraine hmm. to the perception of weakness on the part of the United States that flowed yeah, from its Yeah, given the, the fact that Afghanistan was
0: an um, ally of, by treaty, it was a...
1: A major non-NATO ally under US law.
0: Uh, and uh, under
1: those circumstances, if you start factoring in the costs, not just direct costs, but the costs in the global economy, um, in terms of food supply to countries in the third world and that kind of thing, into the abandonment of Afghanistan, the, the cost-benefit calculation begins to look very different. And in fact, if you go back and have a look at American expenditure on Afghanistan in 2020, it's rather interesting. The uh, direct US funding to the Afghan government in 2020 amounted to naught point seven percent of federal outlays. The entire cost of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, the cost of the U.S. military presence and military activity and that kind of thing, uh, amounted to 0.007% of federal outlays in the United States. What's so often forgotten is that the, the Afghanistan had long since ceased to be a costly war for the United States. 2014 onwards. Um, and indeed, it had ceased even in human terms to be a costly conflict. The total number of US soldiers killed in Afghanistan between the end of 2014 and the collapse on the 15th of August 2021 was 64. And on average, every day in the United States, 59 people die in non-suicide
0: gun violence. So a strong, plausible argument could be that the U.S. did not consider the consequences of this policy and action. The
1: calculations that the United States made seem not to have taken into sufficient account the consequences of withdrawal. Because when you're making calculations about costs and benefits, you can base your calculations on the prospects that you will achieve a positive outcome of a kind for which you might have hoped in the past. But uh, it's also important to take into account the possible negative consequences in the future that might flow from decisions that you're making in the here and now because they can actually be very substantial and Mm. costly as well. Uh, and, uh, and that could apply in a number of different respects, because uh, quite apart from, say, the situation in Ukraine, one could also look at the evidence that's been mustered and presented to the UN Security Council about the ongoing links between Al-Qaeda uh, and uh, the Taliban, uh, which is the subject of a discussion of uh, an article in the latest issue of the Journal of Survival, just produced by the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Um, and um, uh, and I know that serious scholars who are looking at terrorism are genuinely apprehensive that. Um, Al Qaeda might be in a position to reconstitute itself to the point, constitute itself to the point where it could mount yeah. a significant attack in a Western country in the future. So um, there, we're reminded of Hegel's famous comment that the owl of Minerva spreads her wings when dusk is settling. That it's probably too early to tot up all the possible negative consequences of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, there are plenty already which seem to outweigh what the positive consequences might have been if one aim was, uh, as Stephen Walt, for example, argued, to uh, free up the United States to be a more credible and active player in the containment of China. Well, it's very doubtful whether the spectacle of the United States um, fleeing Afghanistan Mm. had that effect at all. Here it's worth drawing a contrast which is not often drawn between the U.S., evacuation of Saigon in April 1975 at the end of the Vietnam War and the exit from Afghanistan. And the critical point here is that the international environment was very different at the two times. In 1975, China was still despite some incendiary rhetoric, very much an inward looking state because of the disruptions that the cultural revolution Mm. under Mao Zedong had produced from 1965 onwards. And In terms of the relationship with the Soviet Union, 1975 was actually the high point of the policy of detente promoted by Dr. Kissinger, which in a sense culminated in the the signing in the second half of 1975 of the Helsinki Accords, the the final act of the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe. Uh, And so in a sense the inward-looking character of China and the prevalence of detente in the wider Soviet-American relationship meant that the costs to the United States of the exit from Vietnam were not that great. The bulk of US forces were actually gone from Vietnam and had been for some years. In Afghanistan, it was a different story. The Afghanistan um, uh, debacle occurred in circumstances where both Russia and China were revanchist in their aims. Russia, in respect of Ukraine, as we'd seen with the two thousand and fourteen occupation China. of territory in eastern Ukraine, and China, yeah. in respect of the South China Sea. It was twenty twenty one was not a time for the weakening yeah. of general deterrence. If you take, for example, Patrick Morgan's distinction between specific deterrence, designed to d- to deter an and immediate action, deterrence. and general deterrence namely a reputational um,
0: standing which would make a hostile power wary about taking mm. the risk of doing it. It seems that dramatic. to the end of this podcast that we had multiple failed peace processes and agreements in Afghanistan. And uh, one is, of course, the Geneva agreement uh, on Afghanistan 1988 and later on, April ninety-two but multiple other negotiations throughout last 30 years that between Taliban and the opponents, whoever had been the Republic or the previous governments, we have not learned the lessons uh, in our engagement uh, or in our uh, disengagement with the Taliban, um, uh, be it through formal peace processes or otherwise. Um, what would be two, three um, uh, res- lessons that you may suggest to the future sort of Um, peace processes in Afghanistan that we should take into consideration?
1: Yes, there are several, uh, and it's a very good point. Uh, First, I think, is that one needs to recognise that very few peace processes or negotiation processes in the past in Afghanistan worked out the way Mm. in which the architects planned. And that is certainly something which... Uh, US players should have had in mind when they were negotiating with the Taliban that there were potential unintended consequences or ways in which an agreement could miscarry that needed to be carefully contemplated, taken into account. So that, that would be a first point, I think, that things don't necessarily work out the way in which you plan. The second is that you need to understand very clearly the character of the yeah. actor with which you're engaging. And here, Dr. Fahunda Akbari has done some very good work on the challenges of negotiating with armed non-state actors, um, comparing the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia and the negotiations with them that led to the Paris uh, Agreement and negotiations with the Taliban. And it takes far more than just a smiling face on the part of uh, a delegate in Doha to establish that it is safe to negotiate with a particular group. And here I'd make the point that Western players tended grossly to overestimate their knowledge of the internal political dynamics of the Taliban. There were some things we did did know about the Taliban, that they Mm. historically were not power sharers. (laughs) Uh, That was very obvious and uh, and that they were highly ideological. But the fact that they had been successful in hiding for two years the death Mm. of their founding leader, should have told us something about how limited was our knowledge of the internal political dynamics which would end up being critical in shaping whether any agreement would be implemented in good faith or not. Certainly, it was exceedingly dangerous to treat the delegate and delegation in Doha as simply as if they bound all the different uh, participants within Uh, what Thomas Wuttig had accurately described Mm. as a network of networks. That was a Mm. very, very dangerous kind of assumption. Yet, of course, it was critical to the negotiation. At the moment, one conceded that that the people in the room were not necessarily speaking authoritatively or in a binding fashion for other elements of the movement. The danger of the whole process would have become obvious. And that would lead me to the last points I'd make. One is people tend to assume that it's automatically a good thing to negotiate. And people go back to Churchill's famous comment, better jaw-jaw than war-war. But it's worth bearing in mind that he said that in the 1950s in the context of negotiations with the Soviet Union to prevent a nuclear war. He did not say it in the 1930s in the context of Mm. uh, the rise of Nazi Germany. Uh, And there are certain circumstances in which it can be very dangerous to negotiate because you can lock yourself into patterns of behavior from which it's very difficult then to extract yourself, which um, are extraordinarily risky. And Kate Clark of the Afghanistan's Analyst Network pointed this out very clearly when she talked about the fantasy castles that were built around the peace process where uh, um, uh, you were having seminars and papers being written on how the Afghan constitution would be drafted to take account of the gender policies of the Taliban. And I remember looking at mm. this and thinking, this is just dreamy stuff. And, and that leads to a final broader point. And it was the point that uh, Telford Taylor made about the Munich agreement, that there are dangers in not facing up to unpleasant realities. And I think the two critical unpleasant realities that people were not prepared in the negotiation process to confront was that the sanctuary issue in Pakistan was central rather than peripheral. And as long as that went unaddressed, negotiations were likely to end up having mm-hmm. catastrophic consequences. And the other was the assumption that one knew sufficient about the Taliban that. You could be confident that they weren't simply using the negotiation process as a kind of trojan horse in order yeah. to cover up a military campaign happened, to take finally. over the entire country
0: with that i think we come to the end of this episode uh Bill, thank you so much for your time i would like to also extend my gratitude to our listeners thank you so much for listening to this episode if you enjoyed this conversation please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and make sure to share it with your friends on social media looking forward to speaking with you on the next episode